Listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover, a show featuring two completely opposite longtime friends. I'm Carrie, who brings the practical buzzkill vibe to this partnership. <laughs> and I'm Amy. I tend to be upbeat and social, but some people say I can also be a little bit gullible. Each week we have book nerd conversations with each other and sometimes a special guest. We not only talk about what we're reading, but also book adjacent topics such as stuff we've had to Google while reading. New titles on our TBR lists. Books we've DNF'd and why. Film adaptations that we've seen. And bookish news. At the end of our shows, you'll have new books to put on your nightstand and a laugh or two along the way. Our guest this week, Jane Moore Waldrop, traded legal briefs of a law practice for her writing journals in an MFA program. Her first book, Drown Town, is a novel in linked stories about the families who lost their homes in the 1960s when President Kennedy announced the creation of Land Between the Lakes, a national recreation area that resulted from damming several rivers and taking land from residents through eminent domain. Jane explores what the meaning of home becomes when one's home is now underwater. Her book was selected as one of the best Southern books of 2021 by the Southern Review of Books. Jane has changed gears once again, this time to tell a picture book story for children titled A Journey in Color, The Art of Ellis Wilson, about one of the great artists of the Harlem Renaissance, native Kentuckian Ellis Wilson, who won two Guggenheim fellowships, but has been virtually unknown in his home state. Jane teamed up with acclaimed Nashville artist Michael McBride to create a book that helps give Wilson his due, but also inspire children to follow their dreams. And stay tuned to our social media accounts because we will be giving away one hardback copy of Jane's novel, Drown Town, for one lucky winner later this week. But first, Carrie, I got you out of the house again. You did. You were very surprised. I was because it was sort of a last minute invitation to go play book bingo as part of the Louisville Free Public Library's winter reading program for adults. Which actually, I don't know that I've ever, I've never done any of the activities before. Uh, I, you know, I don't think I have either. Well, we interviewed the creators of this program on the show several years ago, and it's a very cool program where you they have pop-ups at coffee houses and breweries, and you can get points. It's sort of like uh, a summer reading program that libraries have for kids, but it's for adults, and it's in the winter, and it involves beer. You know, Coffee and beer. What could be better? <laughs> but one of our mutual friends asked us to meet her at one of the local breweries, uh, Fall City Brewing, because they were having book bingo. And I thought, why not? It sounds like fun. And you agreed. And I would just about fell over when you said, <laughs> okay, sure. I know. I don't know what got into me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't either. But we had a fun time, or at least I had a fun time because I bingoed. And you did. You won. You won a major award. Although I will say, I'm not sure that bingo is my my fave game. It was it was fine. It was fun. I enjoyed doing the book bingo, but I've never really played bingo before. I'm not sure I really understand like all the different ways you can bingo. Yeah. It was very evident that you had never worked in a bingo hall as a teenager because the person from the Louisville Free Public Library who was calling the bingo games was like, okay, we're going to do, you know, four corners. We're going to do postage stamps. And you're like, what are they talking about? Yeah, you had no (laughs) idea. So you worked at bingo halls as a teenager? All four years of high school. I worked in a bingo hall because I went to a, a private school and it was like kind of like a fundraiser. But if you worked the bingo, you would get tips. So if somebody won bingo, what we had to do is we had to sell the cards. And then at that time, these were like hard cardboard. And so you would have to collect them all. And so we were collecting like hundreds and hundreds of these bingo cards and having to stack them in crates. And it was kind of hard work and you'd get really dirty. But if somebody bingoed, you had to collect their card and take it up to the front so they could verify the bingo and they would tip you. And so if somebody won, you know, a really good bingo game, you know, somebody might tip you 20 bucks. So that's how I made money in high school. 
<laughs> okay, I think this is also prime difference uh, between us in our upbringings. Now, I am sure that there are Protestant people who play bingo, but <laughs> you grew up Catholic, went yes. to a Catholic school, and yes. Louisville is a very Catholic town. Yes. I did not grow up here, and I have learned... <laughs> They like a lot of bingo games. They like a lot of other fundraisers that involve gambling. I grew up in West Virginia as a Baptist, and we did not have bingo. <laughs> no one would have considered tipping you 20 bucks. Yeah. That was normal. That's how I made money during the school year. I would work at the bingo hall and... Well, the only thing I was a little disappointed in was that I thought I was going to get a dauber or dabber. What's it called? <laughs> it's called a dauber. A dauber, you know, one of those things that uh, you like. It's got you, ink in it. Yeah. And it, it makes yeah, circles. You dab it. Like, yeah. right. And I thought I was going to get one of those, but the Louisville Free Public Library is immensely practical and they just have little pieces that you could put on yeah. and then could chips. be reused. Your bingo chips. chips. Yeah. yeah so. You really don't know the lingo. You really I know, know nothing. <laughs> I really know nothing. <laughs> but the prize I won, now I had several prizes to choose from. The one that I picked was a signed copy of Project Hail Mary from Andy Weir, who was here a few months ago and did an event at the library. So yeah. uh, I'm sure that he signed some copies for the library for things like this. I was pretty excited. So well, the funny go. thing was, like, right before this, you you were getting like right before you won, you were getting so frustrated because you were like, I'm not getting any. They keep calling the same ones and none of them are on my my bingo card. And you were you were like ready to walk. And then immediately after, you're like, I won! Bingo! So great! And then I left. And then you left. Yeah. I'm like, okay, I've gotten bingo. That can't I happen won. twice. So I'm right. out of here. That's enough fun. Uh, well, I think I mentioned last week about how I started doing puzzles again. Mm -hmm. Mainly, I was focused on my dog eating some of my puzzle pieces. But we started a second puzzle this week, my husband and I. And I'm really enjoying it. I really enjoy my new puzzle table that has these little drawers in it that you can put pieces in. But what I found is that this week, it's almost like when you start a book, right? Like you start with the edges and it, you, you're starting out kind of slow, right? And then you get some pieces in and you're like, okay, like what's the point here? And then when you start getting close to the end, it's like, I almost become obsessed. I finally said, Chris, make me stop. I Make me stop doing this puzzle. Because like every time I could find another piece to put in, I'm like, oh my God, I got another one. I'm getting so close. It's almost like the climax of a thriller, right? Like you just want to see it done. And we finished it this morning because I'm like, we have just got to be done with this because it is just too much pressure. <laughs> okay. I wish you could see the look on my face that I'm giving you as you're telling this really, really, really interesting. I mean, I know you give me a bunch of grief for not having a social life, but I just had to listen to you really get carried away about a puzzle. I know. So, it's it's weird, isn't it? So I really, I really don't want to hear any more about, you know, Carrie doesn't go out and do anything. <laughs> my adult kids have come in and they said, oh my God, you guys are old. You're, you're, yeah. you're doing puzzles and you're really into it. I don't understand. But well, I think there's young people who do puzzles. I think there's maybe not they're young, but like 30 somethings like to do puzzles. I, I don't think. know what 30 something Some of them. people do. I don't know. I don't uh, know. I, I really feel like this conversation, did you ever watch SNL when like Anna Gastower was on there and they would do the NPR show and they would talk about <laughs> really boring stuff like bird watching and I like to watch birds too. <laughs> I know stuff that we are now interested in, but when we were in our twenties and watching SNL, we thought this was hilarious and how boring people are. I know. Let's see. Let's see. We've talked about bingo. We've talked about puzzles. <laughs> and, and you and Chris and your Seek app and, you know. Oh, my God. I, mean, I know. We've, okay. reached, we've reached the epitome of, wow. So I did want to mention to you, I know I sent you a picture of this by text yesterday. Mm -hmm. I saw mm -hmm. somebody on Instagram post about this. I have questions, um, though, just to let you know. I have some questions. This person, the uh, account was Paperback Maniac, posted something that was called 
a TBR jar. It was a little jar. And, uh, and basically, all of your books, you put a little piece of paper and you fold it and you put it in that jar. And then when you're ready to read a new book, you just pull one out. And there you go. That makes a decision for you about what you're going to read next. Now, these are books that you own, not library books or not new books. These are just books on your shelves. And this made me think of you, Carrie, because I know you want to read all the books on your shelves. This is not go for me because I'm a mood reader and I want <laughs> and I don't want somebody to tell me what to read. Okay. But I thought that it was, might work for you. That was one of my questions. I, I mean, here's the thing. I don't think I need a TBR jar because I just go and get one off the shelf. So I guess I'm not entirely sure, like, you know, it's cute, but it just seems like if I have to write down all the books that I have and then put them on little pieces of paper and then put it, I I don't know. It just seems like I could just go, oh, look, there's my shelf. I'll read that one. I think there are some people who really struggle with what they want to read next. I don't usually have that problem because I either have a book that I need to read for a book club or a book I need to read because we're going to interview the person as a guest. Or a book you just see and you get really excited about and you're like, I want to read that. Right. I think there's a good number of people who are like, they just can't decide, you know? And so this might be a good fun little option to do that. If I had no books that I had to read for anything, I might be willing to do this. If it fit my mood, if not, I would chuck it and then go to <laughs> just pick see, another one. Well, see, that's the thing. So you go to this work, you write down, say you have, I don't know, 100 books. You write down 100 books, you put them in this jar. And then the first book you pull out, you're like, I don't want to read that one. So then <laughs> do you just keep pulling more pieces of paper out of this jar until you pick the, I don't know. I'm just like, it just seems like a lot of work for you to still reject the books that are on your shelf. Yeah. True. I don't know. <laughs> like okay, I said, well, I totally bring the buzzkill. You know, you're like, cute idea. We should do this. I'm like, okay, let's look at the practical implications of a TBR jar. But here's what I was thinking before you explained it. I was thinking that it was like a jar, like every time, this might be more effective, actually. Say you have your TBR list on Goodreads or wherever you keep your list, that you put a dollar or five dollars every time you add another book to your stupid list. And then that would keep you from adding so many books to your TBR. And in like 12 months, you'd be able to afford a new car. (laughs) I think that we need to tell Bailey from the To Read List (laughs) podcast about this idea. Now, that sounds like an effective tool you know, to keep yourself from going bananas on your TBR list. Yeah. I'll have to tell Bailey about this idea. Yeah. yeah. So Bailey is a guest that we interviewed maybe a year and a half ago. And she and her husband and her brother and a friend of hers started a podcast to try to read all the books that they owned, to try to wheedle it down and not add more books. And so it's a fun podcast, one of my favorite podcasts that I listen to. But I think that we could just simplify their whole lives by telling them that they just had to pay money every time they got new every books. Time. Every time you add a new book, you got to put, you know, I don't know, pick your poison, how much you want that amount to be that you have to put in the TBR jar. So it's sort of like a swear jar. There used to be a, it's swear, like a swear jar. jar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or like I've seen some people who have a... This would be effective in our house. You ask mom for something when dad's standing right there. Yeah. Can't find stuff in the fridge jar. You know, every time my kids are like, or my husband is like, I can't find it. I mean, like today, my husband (laughs) was making oatmeal and he opened up the, the spice cabinet and I could just see like his eyes were scanning wildly. Where is the cinnamon? And I could see it and I just turned it around and gave him that look like, God, you're a moron. Oh my God. We should have jars for so many things. Yes. Like I could have a jar for, I found your socks on the floor again. Yes. Jar. yes. And so they have to put in a dollar five. I mean, my family would be broke, broke, broke. Yeah. I tell you, that's my spin on the TBR jar. I think that's that's the direction we should go in for that. So, and I keep buying thrifted books, but I'm not ashamed. I'm not I'm not ashamed of it. I'm just going to revel in it and I don't care. So there you All go. All right. All right. You know, Jane, our guest this week, Jane Moore Waldrop, also 
seems to have a, a book. She has some book problems. I think similar. I mean, she, she really loves her books and she talks about a book problem she has that's sort of in line with what we've just finished discussing. So are you ready to talk to Jane? I am ready. We've got Jane Moore Waldrop chatting with us today. She's in Lexington. We're glad that we've got her the start of this new year. Jane, thanks so much for being with us. Hello. It's so good to talk to you all. So I have to say, I am in the middle of reading that your debut novel, Drowned Town, which came out a year or two ago. And it's sort of a collection of short stories, but they all interconnect. Long-term story there. And one of our past guests, Bethany Planton, said it was one of her favorite books that she read last year. So I'm excited to finish it. That's wonderful to hear. Thank you, Bethany. (laughs) But we're here today to talk more about a new book that you have out. And you're sort of changing gears here. You have a picture book out that came out in December titled A Journey in Color, The Art of Ellis Wilson. So tell us who is or was Ellis Wilson, and why did you want to write about him? Ellis Wilson was a an acclaimed artist who was born and raised in Mayfield, Kentucky, in far western Kentucky, which is where I grew up in western Kentucky also, in Paducah. He was part of the Great Migration North. Apparently, from early childhood, he knew he wanted to be an artist, and he was African-American, during a time of Jim Crow and limited opportunities for admission to art school. In fact, there were no art art schools in Kentucky that admitted Black students. So his family was committed to him being college educated. So he went two years to the Kentucky State College, which is now known as Kentucky State University and the Historically Black College in Kentucky. There were only two degrees that were offered at Kentucky State at the time. One was a degree in agriculture and one was in education. So this determination to become an artist was not being fulfilled by the curriculum offered at Kentucky State he decided to apply to art schools, and there were so few that admitted African-American students, but he was admitted to the Art Institute of Chicago in 1919. He was born in 1899, and his father was a barber in Mayfield. His mother was a domestic worker. His father, though, had taken a few art lessons from an itinerant painter who came to Mayfield and offered some art classes. So he painted a bit. And that interest in art that Ellis witnessed in his father inspired him to become an artist. He left Kentucky in 1919, lived in Chicago. He became a classically trained artist, which was what he aspired to be. So he finished his degree at the Art Institute of Chicago. He lived in Chicago and worked for about 10 years. He left and moved to New York and became part of the Harlem Renaissance, that cultural explosion in New York City. And he lived in New York for the rest of his life. How did you learn about him? Well, that's what was interesting to me is that, you know, I never saw a bronze marker in Western Kentucky noting his history and his acclaim. I grew up, as I mentioned, in Paducah. So there was really no local lore about him. I also took several art history classes as an undergraduate at the University of Kentucky, including modern art, which was the period he would have been working in. Never heard him mentioned. So I saw a KET. A documentary called So Much to Paint. And it was a documentary of his life. Hmm. This was produced in uh, in the year 2000. And it's really an excellent documentary. It's still available online and through the KET educational programming. So I highly encourage you to watch this show. It's really an intriguing life story to me to know so early and despite all the hurdles that art was worth pursuing. And I think the commitment to be an artist 
today is still not an easy commitment. It's hard to make a living Mm -hmm. as an artist. So I think more than 100 years ago, and from a rural community, and within the parameters of, of segregation, I think it was just a tremendous act of courage to follow this dream. I also heard that the director of the Clara M. Eagle Gallery at Murray State University had organized a retrospective of Ellis Wilson's work. So Albert, when he became director of the art gallery at Murray State, noticed a couple of paintings in their permanent collection. And he was intrigued by this artist and he learned that the paintings were by Ellis Wilson. And he later learned that Ellis Wilson had grown up about 20 miles from Murray State. So he became even more interested in finding more about this artist. So he organized this retrospective, borrowed paintings from museums all around the country. And that's what's so interesting is that this artist is so acclaimed and valued in the art world, but not known in his own state very well. Mm-hmm. So that art show was shown at Murray State University, also at the University of Kentucky Art Museum. University Press of Kentucky published a catalog of the show, and which also included three or four really well-researched pieces about Ellis Wilson's art, growing up in segregated Mayfield, and other connections between the art and the history. It's a really good book. It's still in print. I used that as one of my primary resources, but I noticed in it that they had relied on the archived personal papers of Ellis Wilson that are housed at the Smithsonian Museum of American Art. Hmm. So I found out that I could borrow the microfilm, microfiche copies of those personal papers. And I used those papers. There are about 300 pages of documents in that file. And it was really helpful. It was all the things that he had collected and saved, newspaper clippings, other interviews with him. So I I used that as my primary resource along with the book, The Art of Ellis Wilson. I think what inspired me, though, to write a children's book is because he said he wanted to be an artist from early childhood. And his journey, not only the physical migration north to accomplish this, but also his journey in his artistic life, his art changed quite a bit over the years. Since he was classically trained, he did many of the sort of museum studies that you see art students do with an easel in the museum copying work or with live models. He did a lot of graphic artwork to make a living. He also was a museum guard. He was a courier. He did whatever it took to make ends meet and yet Mm -hmm. still pursue his artistic life. Later in life, it was during the the years in New York that his art really simplified and became more vibrant in colors. So that was one of the reasons for uh, choosing the title, A Journey in Color, because it works both for the physical journey and also his artistic journey. Let me ask this. So you did this research. Was it difficult to you know, because writing a picture book, I would assume is a a lot different than writing a a novel, a collection of short stories, you know, so with doing this research, I imagine you found a wealth of information about him. Was it a challenge to sort of parse that down and decide what you wanted to put in the picture book? Yes. I found that it was a very different type of writing because in a picture book, even in a biography, you know, so it's a nonfiction biography. So you expect more details than those types of picture books that are only one or two words per page. It's a little more in depth than those very sparse picture books. So the main part was trying to figure out what of his story 
would resonate with young readers and perhaps inspire them to identify with him as a person and as an artist to tell this history. So it was a matter of distilling his life story in a way that told it as completely as possible, but in, you know, 700 words. (laughs) So I found it more like writing poetry than writing prose because each word really has to count. (laughs) There's no fluff in 700 words. Mm -hmm. Well, and I would think when you're trying to concentrate everything down in 700 words for a picture book for children, that you're also maybe have a, a theme in mind or a point that ultimately you want to get across. So what yes. was that for you in yes, this book? Yes, I think you're right. So for me, the theme was following one's dream, despite hardships or hurdles that have to be overcome. His art was worth it all. You know, he was so dedicated to creating art. In fact, the KET documentary, So Much to Paint, that title comes from Ellis Wilson's own words. And there are many places in my book that I wanted to use his own words also. And these words were gleaned from interviews that he gave, but also his words, Guggenheim Fellowship Applications. He applied four times for the Guggenheim Fellowship And he earned it and was awarded the Guggenheim twice. Mm -hmm. And he was one of the first African-American recipients of the Guggenheim Fellowship. And that bit of money that came with the fellowship allowed him to travel. He traveled to Haiti and he traveled to the Sea Islands along South Carolina and Georgia and primarily looking at other African-Americans at work, in their daily lives, in their usual goings on. And that's when his art really shifted to portraying Black people in their daily lives, living their lives. And that really had not been painted very often. To me, the thing that is so striking is that, I mean, he won two Guggenheim Awards and he is virtually unknown in his Exactly. You know, uh, like I mentioned, uh, you know, I never saw a bronze plaque dedicated to him in Western Kentucky, but, you know, he is so highly acclaimed. But there was very limited coverage uh, of his acclaim and his talent. And that's one of the things that's really driven me. I want this history to be told. Also, with my book, Drown Town. It's sort of a lost history in Western Kentucky. The fact that so many towns and communities were lost with the flooding that came from the construction of Kentucky Dam and uh, Barkley Dam. These stories seem to be somewhat known in Western Kentucky, but not in the rest of the state and not in the rest mm-hmm. of the country. So I, I guess I like telling these nearly lost stories. So this is a picture book. So there is no picture book without pictures. So tell us a little bit about your illustrator, Michael McBride, and your collaboration with him. Did you seek him out or was it something where your publisher matched you up with an illustrator? Well, my publisher is Shadeland House Modern Press and Virginia Underwood is the publisher there. She asked if I knew of any artist to recommend. It is ultimately the publisher's decision, of course. So I'm a member of the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. And as it turns out, Michael McBride is also a member as an illustrator. So I looked through the gallery of illustrators online and came up with three or four names. And Michael's was at the top of the list. You never know uh, in contacting an illustrator if they're interested, if they're available, or if it fits within the budget, the publisher's budget. We had a Zoom interview with Michael and just knew immediately that he was the ideal illustrator for this book. 
he also knew from childhood that he wanted to be an artist. Mm -hmm. He grew up in a small rural town in West Tennessee. He's now uh, lives in and works in Nashville. He's a professor at Tennessee State, an art professor. And he also has a very active studio. He's illustrated 80 children's books. And he also is just a fantastic painter. He was the one who was selected to do the large Congressman John Lewis mural in downtown Nashville, which is absolutely gorgeous. He's just so talented and does such a variety of work in all media. He chose watercolors for this book, and they're just stunning, I think. He captured the time period and had the talent and the skill to show hints of Ellis Wilson's transformation in his artistic work. So by the end of the book, you've traveled from the child who sees his father painting to, at the end, Ellis Wilson's most famous paintings are taking shape on the canvases that he's painting. So again, another journey, another transformation. Um, And Michael captured that beautifully. It must be very exciting to see your work, much like a novelist or somebody who sees their work on screen and it kind of comes alive. It seems like it would be a similar kind of experience if you're writing a picture book and you've written the words and to see it come to life with those illustrations. I think that's a a great way of putting it. It has been thrilling for me to see my words come to life and in a way that is more complete. Yeah, because like I said, 700 words can't tell the whole thing, but the the illustrations go so far in capturing the emotion on the faces and the personalities. And Michael did an amazing job with that. He studied the era for details, for clothing, for shoes, for hair. So uh, he tried to be as historically accurate as possible to capture that time period. So you mentioned your book, Drown Town, and that came out in 2021. And it is about, you mentioned Lake Barkley and and the area. So I've been to Land Between the Lakes, which, Mm -hmm. as I understand it, you know, not being from that area those towns were drowned in order to create this area. Kentucky Lake and Lake Barkley are two of the largest man-made lakes in the world and still the largest body of water between the Great Lakes and the Gulf of Mexico. I grew up just having this in my backyard and loving it, but not really thinking about what was there before. My family's not from Western Kentucky. My family is Appalachian, and they mm. moved and were, I guess, uh, sort of dislocated Appalachians for my lifetime. And I know from that act of dislocation and displacement that people long for home, yearn for home. And what I started connecting in adulthood is that for so many people in Western Kentucky, this was a major environmental change there and cultural change. So many towns were lost due to the the rise of the lake levels when the Tennessee River and the Cumberland Rivers were dammed. So it, it really changed Western Kentucky in a major way that I never really appreciated. And since I didn't know people who had lost their homes, their farms, it was not until as I said, adulthood, that I started sort of putting it together that this was enormous change. Primarily, the loss of the Between the Rivers communities occurred. In 1963, President Kennedy announced that there would be a national recreation area created in an area that was Between the Rivers. And that area was known as Between the Rivers. It's a small little skinny strip of peninsula that existed. Uh, and it was mostly small towns and, and rural communities. When Land Between the Lakes was created, through the power of eminent domain, the government purchased, I believe it's 170,000 acres. 
the goal was to create a wilderness for recreational opportunities, camping, hunting, fishing, uh, hiking. So every building, every home, school, church between the rivers was torn down to create an area that looks as though it is a pristine nature preserve. But about 10,000 people were moved out of those areas. It's three counties in Kentucky and Tennessee. So there were many towns that were just dismantled. And so in Drowntown, I look at both the towns that were flooded for the lakes, but also the towns and communities that were deconstructed to create land between the lakes. But in a fictional form, they're, they're short stories form. that that are interconnected to make a, a larger story arc about the people who lived there and lost their, their homes. Yes. I decided to write in the, a fictional account of this uh, as historical fiction because I wanted to capture not specifically one person's story or one family's story, but voices from all around the lakes area, because there are many different impacts, whether you were living in the old town of Edville or the old town of Katawa or on a farm between the rivers. There are many different voices that I wanted to include. So I wrote it as linked stories that reads as a novel, basically. But I wanted those many voices because I don't think one voice could tell all the the impacts. Mm -hmm. Well, again, I am in the middle of reading it and I actually love a novel that's made out of individual short stories. So uh, I'm enjoying it. I do too. It's one of my favorite forms. And, you know, one of my favorite books is Olive Kittredge, which is, you know, a linked story collection that, that reads like a novel though, and is considered uh, by most people a novel, but, all those standalone voices, I think, are make a really intriguing book. So you are a big reader as well. So do you have yeah. a biggest book problem that you have? Shelves. I need more. Shelving. <laughs> you need more or you have too much? No, I need more shelving uh, <laughs> for all the books that just continue to stack up. I guess I'm a book hoarder. You know, it's really hard for me to give up any of my books, but... I have been getting better at that. I have been sending some of my books to the International Book Project, which is here in Lexington, and they send books all around the world to fill library shelves and school library shelves and to supply Peace Corps volunteers all around the world. So I think it's a wonderful project. So that encourages me to clean my shelves occasionally. Oh, I've never heard of that. The International Book Project, huh? Yes. It was founded in the 1960s. And I don't know, the concept was just so uh, progressive, I think. And they've been operating now for half a century and still going strong. Huh. I'll have to look into that. Yeah, I'm always yes. interested to hear what people do with the books that they decide need to have a new home. Uh, because as book lovers, we don't want to trash books. So you're always trying to find another way for them to find a good home. I think Amy is using this information that you're giving her as, as her excuse for why she can now go visit additional book sales and, yeah. you know, <laughs> like, well, right. I can get more because now I know some additional places where I can right. donate them <laughs> when I'm done. So in our episode that Amy and I just recorded. Amy really loves wintry books. What do you enjoy? Do you tend to enjoy reading books about the season you're in? So in this case, wintry books or snow books, or do you like to escape and read about the season that is different from the one you're in? That's an interesting concept. I've never really thought about specifically seeking out a book based on the season, but that's interesting. I am generally not a winter person. I'm not much of a a cold weather person or gray sky person. I do like, you know, a sunnier climate. 
except I guess in winter, winter is provides a great opportunity to stay indoors and read. So I finding in the first 10 days of this year, I'm really clicking through some books. So and I think that's <laughs> all related to I'm not outside as much as I'd like to be. Right. So I love audiobooks too. So when I do get to to be outside, I'd love to uh, go for a walk with an audiobook. And that's really fun for me. What's the last good audiobook you listened to? I'm always looking for audiobook recommendations. I just listened to The Rabbit Hutch by Tess Gunty, which won no. the National Book yeah. Award this year. Yeah. That was a really interesting one. It was very well performed, you know. Some voices are just so much better than others. Oh, absolutely. A collection of voices really makes it um, almost like watching a movie. You know, you get these different characters with different voices. So that one was really good. Does it have one narrator or is it, does it have multiple narrators? It has narrators? multiples. It has multiples. Yeah. Those are my favorites. Yeah. Because so it's almost was- like you're listening to a play or you're listening to a Exactly. You know, like, a film. you know, like, Years ago, when a, a family would sit around the radio to hear radio shows, you know, so it's right, you don't have the visual component, so you really have to pay attention to the words. So, I like that. Plus, I can get a lot more books read. Well, I think now is a good time for us to take a short break. I need to get a little bit more coffee, and when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Jane Moore Waldrop, and we are going to talk a little bit about what we're all currently reading. So, Carrie, what's next on your red list? Uh, Well, I just added it yesterday, I think. Uh, You're going to be reading it pretty soon. I listened to it in audiobook format. So the book is These Silent Woods by Kimmy Cunningham Grant. The audiobook is narrated by two individuals, but the one individual only narrates like a very small portion at the end. So the primary narrator is Bronson Pinchot. And that name, when I saw it, immediately rang a bell for me. So if you are of a certain age, you may remember a television show called Perfect Strangers. There were (laughs) two guys who ended up being roommates and they were very, very different. And one of the characters was from, I don't even remember where he was from, but his name was Balky and he had a very distinctive accent. Well, Bronson Pinchot is the actor who played Balky on Perfect Strangers. So when I saw that he was reading this, I immediately thought, okay, Balky is going to be narrating this book. So I wasn't really sure what to expect. As it turns out, Bronson Pinchot does not sound like Balky. He has a wonderful, deep, soothing voice that I absolutely love. So if you don't care what you read and you are just looking for an audiobook narrator, maybe check out Bronson Pinchot. This book, The Silent Woods, is the story of Cooper and Finch. They're a father and daughter, and they live deep in the woods alone. It's just the two of them. So Finch's mother was killed in a car accident. And so Finch is eight, and Cooper has raised her himself all these years. Now, they do have a neighbor. uh, and, And when I say a neighbor, he lives quite a bit away from them in the woods, he sort of comes around occasionally and he gives off this kind of creepy vibe because the reason he'll know what's going on with Cooper and Finch is that he has a spotting scope. So you're like, okay, is he, you know, like what's his deal? Cooper does not trust him very much at all. So as the story progresses, you learn a little bit more about why Cooper and Finch are deep in the woods to begin with. So Cooper serves several tours in Afghanistan and the the home that they live in actually belongs to his friend Jake. Uh, Jake was injured in Afghanistan and there's a story related to Jake's injury and, and some things that Cooper did in Afghanistan that has weighed on him all this time. You learn about why they're here, why Jake lets them use this house, and about the secrets that 
Cooper is keeping and he's keeping them from everybody, including Finch. So something happens in the story. I can't tell you too much, but something threatens their peaceful secret existence in the woods. And so I was reading this book, you know, it's very much character driven. I'm feeling this tension, like what's going to happen. You know, I don't know where this story is going. And the end of the book, I thought I knew where it was going and something turns and it completely tugs at your heartstrings. So I, I really thought about giving it five stars. I, I ended up giving it four stars, but it's it's a really touching story that has a little bit of suspense in it, uh, but very much character driven. So again, it's an audiobook version of The Silent Woods by Kimmy Cunningham Grant. I need to get on it. Now, are they, is it set in, you said set in the, in the woods. It's in Appalachia somewhere, isn't it? I don't know that. No? Oh, okay. I, I mean, I I when I, it was. maybe it is, but I imagined it someplace in the West, like mm. Montana, only because it talked about how cold it got, you know, as a general rule in Kentucky, it doesn't get that cold. Like we recently had a cold spell and it got to be 19 degrees but usually that doesn't happen. And and in this case, there was like lots of snow. And so I kind of okay. thought it was more like Montana, be Colorado. For some reason, okay. I was thinking it was in like the mountains of North Carolina or something, but I, I could just be imagining that. Well, Jane, what have you been reading lately? Well, I finished this book about a month or two ago, but it has it really lingers in my mind. It's Demon Copperhead by Barbara mm. Kingsolver. I think it's an amazing book. It is my favorite of her books now, and I'm I'm a big fan. But it is set in Appalachia, and it is a retelling of the Charles Dickens novel, David Copperfield, but set in Appalachia during the opioid crisis, which I know is, uh, it's the early days of the opioid crisis. So I think it's just a, a brilliant structure to the book and the characters are so compelling that, as I said, they've really lingered in my mind since I read the book. I highly recommend it. So have you read David Copperfield? I did years ago, you know, in college as an English major, I read David Copperfield and I actually have it on hold on Libby as an audio book that uh, it's not, apparently it's in demand now <laughs> because of Demon Copperhead. So um, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to listening to that book again, sort of making the comparison to Demon. That has got to be an incredibly long audio book. Have you, have you looked to see how long David Copperfield David, is? Um, I've not, I don't remember, but uh, Demon, I think is about 20 hours. Yeah. Let me let me see. I'll look them up right now. Yeah. Okay. I think you're right. I have seen that now lots of people are reading David Copperfield. They want to, you know, do do the comparison. Exactly. I have oh, a person. Holy moly. Uh, <laughs> sorry, David Copperfield. I'm seeing 34 hours, 39 oh hours. Oh wow. Ooh, okay, now let me look up Demon Copperhead. Ooh. That's a lot of walking. That's <laughs> you might want to start now. <laughs> so Demon Copperhead is 21 hours. It's so funny because I took a trip with my husband to Ireland in the fall and the Ooh, book had just you. come out. But when we were over there, Demon Copperfield had come out, uh, I think a few weeks earlier. But I, you know, it was something I was going to purchase when I got home. But one of the bookstores that we went to there, because, of course, I had to go to a bookstore in just about every little town we went to, if they had one, had the most beautiful copy that had mm. these like painted edges. And so I have a I have an Irish version oh. of Demon you had to Copperhead. carry that home. Your luggage yes. probably weighed a lot more. My husband home. was not thrilled. I've got to tell you, he was <laughs> not, not thrilled with those choices that I was making. But in the end, I decided that I didn't care what he thought about it. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> have you read Lark Ascending Silas House's new book? I have oh, not. But in Ireland. Yes, I have it, but I have not read it yet. But yeah. I believe 
that part of it is set in one of the locales that we visited, which was like a seventh century monastery. I think that's maybe yeah. where he Glendalock. meets the little dog. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. yes, yes, yep, yeah. I highly recommend that book. Also, yeah. A previous guest, I think our last guest of right before Christmas, that was the book that she talked about, and she really enjoyed it. So, mm-hmm. very good. Okay, I need to say the book that I mentioned, The Silent Woods. It does say living in the remote. Appalachian Mountains. The problem with the Appalachians is that they go a really long way. So when somebody says Appalachian to me, I think Kentucky. But really, I mean, it could go up into Pennsylvania to New New York, right? They go pretty far up there. And to be honest, the mountains of West Virginia is very remote and they get a lot of snow. Okay. So, I mean, I, I know that it's sort of vague, the Appalachians, but it, it you could definitely could get a lot of snow and it could be cold. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, Amy, what have you had going on? Well, this is a book that I read actually before the holidays. And I find that near the holidays, I read more children's and middle grade books than I normally would. And I think there's something about that time of year that brings out my inner child, I guess. So mm-hmm. I saw this book. I don't even know where I heard about it. It's called Ben Yokoyama and the Cookie of Doom by Matthew Swenson and Robbie Bear. And so I dug into this amazing book. They are a husband-wife duo. And it's the story of Ben Yokoyama. He's nine years old and he and his aunt go to a Chinese restaurant. And, you know, at the end of their meal, they get a fortune cookie as one does. And in the fortune, it says, live each day as if it were your last. And so Ben really takes this message to heart and he decides that today really could be his last day. And so he begins to make a bucket list of things that he must do by the end of the day. But then he inspires those around him, like his best friend, to do the same. Uh, His best friend Janet, his parents, and even some of his neighbors. And so some of the things on his bucket list get him in trouble. Like he decides to eat the piece of cake that's in the freezer, but that turns out to be the last piece of wedding cake from his parents' wedding from their 10-year anniversary. But sometimes the things that he does helps him make friends that he wouldn't normally have made. But in the end, he realizes he can't really do everything on his list in one day. So he decides to live every day as if it were his last. This book was an absolute joy to read. It's whimsical, it's fun, and it has a great underlying message. And it's the first in a series called The Cookie Chronicles. Swanson writes the story and his wife Robbie illustrates. These are chapter books for late elementary or or middle school, but the illustrations give it sort of a pseudo graphic novel feel, and they're just really cool. The illustrations really add something to the story. So unlike a graphic novel where the picture would be the main part, this is sort of like divided in half, half prose and half picture. It's great for someone like me who doesn't totally feel comfortable with graphic novels, or it's great for a kid who mainly reads graphic novels and their parent wants them to read a book that's more word heavy than picture heavy. So again, the name of the book is Ben Yokoyama and the Cookie of Doom by Matthew Swanson and Robbie Bear. Sounds like a fun one. It does. It was very fun. Very fun. All right. Well, let's take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to put Jane in the hot seat for her uh, three questions to get to know her better. (laughs) I don't know. We we keep changing the name of what we call this section. So I don't know. Your your big three. There you go. Your big three. We are back with Jane Moore Waldrip, and we're going to ask her her big three. So, Jane, we've been talking to you today about the new picture book that you have just published. And so I'm wondering, do you have a favorite memory related to a picture book from when you were a child? I do. I do. It's a very strong memory. And I think really important in my love of reading and my love of books. I remember, and this, of course, uh, dates me pretty well. (laughs) I remember going into the library, the public library in Paducah, and seeing Where the Wild Things Are as a new release. 
Michelle, <laughs> the famous and just glorious Maurice Sendak picture book. I'm was in elementary school in the in the 1960s, and so much of what we had in first grade on learning to read were the old Dick and Jane books, mm. which mm-hmm. were just horrid. You know, they were so <laughs> boring, and they were about this family that certainly didn't look like my family. <laughs> they were also perfect and uh, so orderly. So when I saw where the wild things are and thought, this might be closer to my family, (laughs) but also just the beautiful art that went with it. And this story that was so unlike anything I had read uh, as a young reader. So I loved that book and I can still see it sitting on the shelf of new releases. Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) I think we all have like a book or two that, that maybe if you're a book lover kind of stick in your mind from when you were a kid. And those are some, Mm -hmm. sometimes some really strong memories. Mm -hmm. So that's cool. All right. Question number two. So you have a law degree and practice law for a time. So what area of law did you focus in and why? Well, a couple of different opportunities. One is I uh, started after law school at the Louisville law firm of Stites and Harbison. So I did mostly corporate law and really not as a matter of choice, but Mm. because uh, I was hired as a new associate and um, that's sort of where I ended up. There was such a, a vibrant law practice in corporate law in the 1980s, you know, the go-go 80s where everything was bigger and glitzier. (laughs) um, That was a really important part of the practice. Let me ask. So if you had been able to choose Mm -hmm. where you absolutely would love to have focused, where would it have been? You know, probably, I would probably want to be a law professor and take my law degree in that direction, mostly because I love being on a university campus. Mm. So that is my segue into what I did next. After my son was born, I decided large law firm practice was not what I wanted to do. And so I ran student legal services at the University of Louisville, which was a very part-time law practice, but I help students with their personal legal problems, which is usually, you know, landlord tenant related or domestic relations or um, car wrecks. Oh, <laughs> so it was a, a small and varied practice, but I really loved it. And it, it suited me for those child rearing years too, of working part time. Yeah. I have several college age children And a lot of times were you thinking, why did you do that stupid thing? (laughs) 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 Because I find college age students do a lot of stupid stuff because they're, they're young and don't have a lot of life experience. And (laughs) what I started realizing too was the problem. And I think it was about the time credit card companies and banks started setting up tables during orientation week to get students signed up for credit cards. Mm -hmm. So it was like free money. And I started noticing that at the time and thinking, this is not going to work out well, Mm -hmm. you know, when you get these balances that you can't pay off. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it just seemed like uh, almost cannibalizing the student body. Absolutely. So I did see a lot of students who got into debt problems and uh, there was a direct correlation, I believe. (laughs) Which is why they're not allowed to do that anymore. Finally, someone. That was a really bad era for setting up students to get into a financial situation that would probably cause them to leave college. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, your last question. So what is a gift that you've been given that you didn't appreciate at the time, but you eventually learned to love or developed a feeling of appreciation for? <laughs> oh, that's an interesting question. We sort of have a rule in our family that we don't give electrical appliances as gifts. <laughs> 
nothing with a plug in, you know. Um, but I remember, um, this was years ago, I remember getting a tent for my birthday from my husband. And it was a gift that was not requested. <laughs> you know? But I ultimately grew to love that tent and all the opportunities it gave us to, you know, to be outdoors and camping and all that. But it was just that the look of disappointment, I'm sure. That was a gift for himself right there. But, you know, we've had some good use of that tent, including as last June, we used that same tent to go see the synchronous fireflies in the Smoky Mountains. And you have to camp out to get to see them. So uh, we had to bring the tent back out of storage and... It was a really cool thing. That is so awesome. I've seen articles about that. Right. It's it's yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, so the, the tent came in very handy. Although well, there was I, a bear attack in that same campground like the week after that. And oh, no. Thinking, I think I want a camper next time or an RV <laughs> next time we go see the fireflies. Oh, shoot. <laughs> well, Jane, it's been so great chatting with you about your new book, A Journey in Color, The Art of Ellis Wilson. Thanks so much for spending time with us today. Thanks so much for the opportunity. I've really enjoyed it. If you want to see all the books, different things that we talked about today, you can go to our website. You can get show notes there. It's www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. We're also on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod and on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover. If you like what we're doing on this show, tell a friend. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help people find us or leave us a review. Only positive (laughs) (laughs) reviews. On your favorite podcast platform, whatever that may be. And finally, a huge thank you to Ford Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org.